So, you guys ever seen these movies? Yeah? Okay. Seen them? Great. Seen both endings? Yeah? Where'd they go? Oh, Pro Presenter Strikes Again. Okay, Blade Runner, I Am Legend, Titanic. They're disappearing instead of appearing. Remember them. It's just that morning, guys. It just is. Um, I know, as soon as I got you guys to pass my budget, I just throw it in, you know? Um, so these three movies, Titanic, I Am Legend, and Blade Runner, all have multiple endings. They have alternate endings. And usually alternate endings happen when, a, when the director or the writer of the film or the writer of the book that's been adapted to a film has a different vision for the ending than the production staff or the marketing folks on the business side. So in the case of, for example, I'm just going to use uh, Blade Runner. It's probably the most famous alternate ending ever. Um, it, on one side, you have Harrison Ford and the production team who are very set in this, the original ending is accurate, um, the theatrical ending, and then you have a whole cult following um, that, that, that says, no, actually, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but um, the, the, the biggest twist in the movie is actually not the twist, and everything is as it was at the beginning of the film. The, boy, the movie was pointless. Why'd you even watch? And that was Ridley Scott's uh, vision for it. And it's, it, this happens a lot. In the case of I Am Legend, um, the, the book I Am Legend by Isaac Asimov uh, features the, the last human on earth as ultimately coming to terms with the fact that he is the villain of the story. That when all of uh, life on earth has evolved into these kind of like uh, dark seekers, that's what they're called in the book, these uh, like alien creatures who run around on earth after there was a virus outbreak, that he going around and trying to cure this virus when he's the last human on earth is actually the villain of the story. Because he is the one that's a risk to the communities that have been built. And so when, when you have this, this, you know, there's money in movies, we all know this, and you're trying to sell it, you have these alternate endings, but you also have what I call the fake-out endings. That's one type of alternate ending. Then you have the fake-out endings. I'm going to see. These are also going to disappear. Yep. Um, Captain America, The Dark Knight Rises, and then the best one of all, Lord of the Rings. And the fake-out ending is not intended to be a, uh, a, a different ending. Really what it is is the fake-out ending has what you think is the end of the movie happen. You have a letdown. Okay. The movie's over. And then, actually, the movie lights back up. It, it restarts. In the case of Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, uh, there's notoriously like five or six endings in this movie. And it, it, when you watch the extended edition, it's already like three and a half hours long. And so you're like, this has got to be the ending. The first ending, Frodo doesn't destroy the ring. The second ending, you know, and you, get, you go on and on and on. And it's like, and finally you get to the end of the movie and the credits roll and you're like, oh, I thought that one was going to be another fake out, right? Dark Knight Rises, we see Bruce Wayne at the end of the movie. You know, we, the, the, all of the things that happen in these movies. Captain America, he's not dead, right? They, and, and ultimately, what we have in this text, this Isaiah text, we don't really realize it, but this is exactly what happens in the biblical narrative over time. It's not an alternate ending, like some would paint it. Oh, it's, a, it's an alternate ending. It's actually not what Isaiah intended. What I like to think of it as is more like the second group, that it's a fake-out ending. And ultimately, all of them mean the same thing, that there's more to be said 
than what you might expect. There's more to be said than what you might expect. So when we think about this verse from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 7:14, you've all heard it before. The sign, there'll be a child born of a virgin. We might think that this is the original text, exactly in this form. But in reality, it's not. I'm not going to go ahead. I'm not going to just, don't just calm down. Jesus was born of a virgin. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the original Isaiah text does not say what we think that it says. It does not say what I actually read in our printed Bibles. In, in, in the NIV, in the NSRV, they corrected it. But in the NIV, it literally does not say those words. And that's because you have two Old Testament texts that are popular at the time of Jesus. You have the Masoretic text, which is the text in Hebrew. That's what we use today. We translate the text in Hebrew. The first two-thirds of the Bible is written in Hebrew originally. We translate that directly into English, and we use it. We saw this uh, last week when we talked about Jesus' name origins. We translated it five times until we got Jesus instead of translating it directly out of Hebrew. But then you also have this other text, the Septuagint. And we'll get to what the Septuagint was in a moment, but the Septuagint was actually vastly more popular than the Hebrew Masoretic text, and that's what's important for this. So this is, the, this is how it's translated into the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, directly out of the Masoretic, that's the Hebrew text. It says, therefore, the Lord will give, him, give you a sign. This is uh, King Ahaz uh, is piously saying, I don't want a sign. What, what he really is saying in, this, in, in the midst of this is, I don't need a sign because I'm going to do whatever I want anyway, so God, don't waste your time, so, right? So, um, so, you know, then Isaiah says back to him, no, no, no. You don't want a sign? I'm going to give you a sign. It says, look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and we shall call him Emmanuel. The young woman is with, a, is, is with child and shall bear a son and we shall name him Emmanuel or, or he shall be named Emmanuel. And what, you, what we might miss is that this is a prophecy that Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah. The king of Judah likely had a young wife. It was, it was one of the things, the, the perks of being king, I guess. I don't know. His, his wife was young. And so when Ahaz says to him, the young woman, he's saying, your wife is with child. She has, she's going to have a baby. It's a prophecy. He's telling the future. And she'll bear a son, and we shall name him, or you shall name him, Emmanuel. And if you remember back, we'll, we'll get to this in a second, but that actually does happen. But you probably have never heard the Christmas story told with this text. You've heard it told with this one. Therefore, Lord, the, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin is with child, and she shall bear him a son, and he shall be named Emmanuel. But see, there's a, there's a distinct difference in here, and I don't need to go into biology what the difference between a young woman who's married to the king and a virgin is. It's seemingly unmiraculous that a young woman would give birth to a son. So the prophecy is, a, is when Isaiah is giving the prophecy, he's not saying anything miraculous. So why do we get this? Where does this word come from? How do we get that out of Hebrew? And that's why, that's where the Septuagint comes in. The Septuagint, say Septuagint. Septuagint. You're still awake. This is incredible. I'm talking about ancient languages and you're still awake. Um, Septuagint literally means the 70, okay? Sept, 70. And the Septuagint, it's a Greek word, 
is the word for the translation of the Old Testament, the, the 60 or the, the 60% of the of the first half of the Bible, this first 60% of the Bible, the Old Testament, translated from Hebrew, the Masoretic text, into Greek. And whenever the New Testament is referenced, almost whenever, the book of Hebrews does it a little bit differently, but whenever, and it's that's why it's called Hebrews, um, Whenever the, the New Testament is referenced, the New Testament references the Old Testament, they're not using the Masoretic text, they're using the Septuagint text. Now, how did the Septuagint come to be? Well, folklore says that the, uh, the king, the, there was a king at the time, uh, Pliny II, is that right? I think so. Pliny II, who gathers together six of the, the top scholars, six of the top scholars from all 12 Hebrew tribes. Six times 12 is? Hey, there we go, we got it, 72. And so these 72 scholars gather together, and what happens is they uh, begin to translate this text. Now there's two um, kind of folklore pieces of this. The first, which is Jewish folklore, says that the 72 individuals went into separate, 72 separate rooms and spent 72 days translating the Old Testament into, the New, into, into Greek. And on the 72nd day, all of them opened their door simultaneously, walked out together, and had the exact same translation to the word. It's kind of crazy. What we know for certain is that these 72 took 72 days. We don't know if they were separate or together. But ultimately, at the end of it, these 72, it's, it's, if you know anything about um, ancient Jewish tradition, the fact that 72 elders agreed on anything like, is a miracle in and of itself, even if they weren't separated. So they agree on one co cohesive Greek Old Testament. And by and large, it is incredibly accurate. 99.9% .9 accurate with what modern biblical scholars would take the Masoretic text translated into Greek. So accurate, in fact, that the Orthodox, the, the Christian Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, one-third of, of the kind of the three main denominations of Christianity, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, only use the Septuagint. They don't use the Masoretic text. They say, this is so pure, we can use it. And it's also Greek Orthodox, so they speak Greek. Makes sense. But one of the only critical seeming errors is that for no reason perceivable, they decide to turn the word young woman in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, into virgin. Why they did this is totally unknown. Hebrew scholars to this day who are not Christians go, we have no idea. It does not make any sense. But one person making that error, sure, because the words in Hebrew are somewhat similar. But making the error, 72 of the best biblical scholars ever making this error and, and deciding as a cohesive whole, or, or in their mind, 72 all making the exact same error in their separate locked cells seems completely illogical. And like I said, the, the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 14 had already been fulfilled. Do you remember when I preached on Hezekiah? Some of you do, probably some of you don't. If you weren't here, you certainly don't remember it. But Hezekiah is this figure in the Old Testament. We don't talk about him a lot. But he is actually the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. He is 
Ahaz's son. So when, when Isaiah goes to Ahaz and says, you have, here's your sign, your wife or a young woman, uh, the young woman is with child. She shall bear a son. We shall call him Emmanuel. Uh, he, literally, I, Hezekiah does not mean God is with us, which is what Emmanuel means. Hezekiah means God is strong, will save us. And that's exactly, if you remember, what Hezekiah does. He's the only good king in all of Judah. In the history of Judah, he's the only good one. He's the one who throws down the idols. He's the one who prays his way out of a tight bind with the Assyrians. Remember, I was telling them they were in Joliet with 200,000 people, and then they were going to be here tomorrow, and somehow half of them died overnight. This is the story of Hezekiah. And so for generations, reading the Old Testament text, this was a prophecy that had been fulfilled. It was a prophecy that testified to God's faithfulness to fulfill prophecies. So it's inconceivable. It was one of the primary prophecies that was pointed to. God is so faithful. Look, he said he was going to do it with Hezekiah, and then he did it. It's inconceivable that they would change the prophecy to make it so that Hezekiah no longer is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Because we have nowhere in the biblical text that tells us that Hezekiah's mother was a virgin. For them to make that error is for them to say that this prophecy has yet not been fulfilled. 72 Jewish believers, 300 years before Jesus was born. And so then you have this, the Christmas story. And all of a sudden it makes sense. It comes together. The angel and the whole thing and it falls, falls together. And you know the story. I don't need to tell it to you. But really what's at the crux of this, I believe, the crux of this Hezekiah, Jesus, Ahaz, Isaiah, Septuagint, Masoretic text mix-up is this idea that God is at work in seemingly unmiraculous things. This is the overarching concept. I'll get there. But God is at work at seemingly unmiraculous things. Let me tell you why. One, we have an example this morning. I'm not lying to you. I didn't tell them to play that hymn. And they played that hymn. God is at work in seemingly unmiraculous things. That's not miraculous. They just picked a hymn. Biblical translation. Boring, yes. Miraculous, well, yes. But that's a whole other sermon. <laughs> Ultimately, taking something, translating it into another language, is something that human beings can do, i.e. not really miraculous. Women giving birth, again, I think we all could look at the science behind it and say, wow, it's miraculous how human beings can, can be created in other human beings' bodies. It's incredible. But it's happened literally billions of times. So it can't be that miraculous. Unexpected. But yet in this, in this, we see that God is at work in unmiraculous things so that miraculous things can follow. See, the story of, of Jesus reframes all of the rest of Isaiah's messianic prophecies. That means prophecies about the Messiah. That as soon as Isaiah 7 is reframed to be Emmanuel as someone who has not yet come, then all of a sudden Isaiah 11 falls off. This hasn't happened yet. Isaiah 9, which we talked about last week, well, that hasn't happened yet. 
you can go all the way down the line. See, it's a domino effect that creates, in effect, this incredible story that's not yet been told, even though they thought it had been told. And ultimately, it just means that God's not done yet, which is really good news. Because if God's done, wow, I've got loud all of a sudden. If God's done, then I'm really in trouble. I think every single one of us thinks that, it, thinks that it's good news that God acts in seemingly unmiraculous ways and yet is not done in our lives enough to leave us to our own devices. What I want to offer you this morning is that God's interjections into human history, the most significant of which comes from the tweaking of this prophecy, the birth of Jesus, God incarnate into our world, should make us ready for God to begin to act in our midst as well. Because a lot of times we want to look at the story of Jesus as the end of the story. And nowhere does it say that. Sure, we might have what we call special revelation, that's scripture. We might have that as a complete thing where we say, okay, nothing's going to be added to this. But that doesn't mean that our lives aren't going to speak into the, the pieces of scripture to retell the story, to continually tell the story. We tend to be a more reserved congregation, Okay. So when I say that we need to be ready for the Holy Spirit to move, understand that I'm not expecting you all to get up and start to speak in tongues. I'm not expecting it. If it happens, that's great. There's a story of it happening in the 90s at North Park. But anyway, I'm not expecting that to happen. I'm not necessarily expecting for Jimmy and Rhonda to start playing shout music and people dance through the aisles. We're a more reserved congregation. That's okay. But it's only okay insofar as we're ready to jump feet first into what God moves our congregation to do. You can continue to be reserved. We can continue to be somewhat conservative in our worship. Only if, when God calls us to something, we are ready to do it. Because as soon as we decide that we're going to be so reserved that we've, God's done speaking and if God calls me to something, I'm not going to do it, then we become sinful. See, it's not okay when we become sure, so sure of what God has said, so sure that it's over, that we're unwilling to make any more, take any more risks when God calls us to something new. It's one of the many Christmas pieces that we forget. So this Christmas... I want you to think about the Advent hope that was unwelcomed by so many people at the time. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about Herod, King Herod, and how the Advent hope, the coming of a new king, was threatening to his power and his privilege. See, we need to look at Christmas this year and every Christmas until Jesus comes back as an opportunity to prepare ourselves for what God is going to do when Jesus returns and not simply re-entrench ourselves to the comforts that we're a part of.
You've seen it on Netflix. I already said it last week. Christmas movies are all about the true meaning of Christmas, which usually is something other than getting and receiving gifts. It's better to give than receive or something like that. But ultimately, we have to reframe the entire holiday because any gift exchange, as we were talking about in Christian formation, any gift exchange that perpetuates the cycle of us living on top and looking down means that we are not super excited for Jesus to come back and level the playing field. Why would you be, why would you be, right? If you're on top of the mountain, why would you like it when Jesus levels it all off? What does it mean when the first are last and the last are first if we're all the first? It's complicated. It's difficult. And that's the fear of Christmas for me. That we make it so much about consumption, that we make it so much about staying on top or getting the newest thing or whatever, or even just celebrating that we have families that we're not suffering persecution, whatever it is, that we're not ready for God to do anything new and mess it up. We're not ready to cancel Christmas Eve service because Jesus comes back because I really like singing those songs. We really would prefer that Jesus come back on the third week in December next year so that we can have Lucia again. We'd really prefer, which I love, right? We'd really prefer that Jesus wait a little longer so that I can get all my stuff in order first. So I want to ask you, are you excited for Christmas? not just for the holiday. Are you excited for the Advent hope that God is going to do something new? That prophecies that we thought were fulfilled might be reinterpreted and re-fulfilled. That it's not necessarily about what God has already said, although that's a big piece, but also what God is saying every single day to each of you and to me. Because God gave us a wonderful example of how he's still moving in unmiraculous ways in our congregation. And I would hate for us to miss those and miss out on the truly miraculous ways that God has foretold he will come back. So are you excited for Christmas? Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're good. <laughs> God is working in seemingly unmiraculous ways. That's incredible. Are we ready for Christmas? Are we ready to roll back the slide? Do whatever it is necessary to recognize the ways in which God is acting in our lives. I hope I am. Although sometimes I know I'm not. Join me in actually trying to prepare for the Christmas that we all should want. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we offer to you, all of us, our whole selves, we ask that if you one day reframe scripture for us 
as challenging as that might feel, as much as we might push back against that, as much as we should be skeptical in the ways in which people are trying to reframe what you're saying, that we would be willing to hear it. And as 1 John says, have a discerning spirit that would look at it and say, is this from God? Because if it is, I don't want to be on the outside looking in, still holding on to all of my preconceptions about what this is supposed to look like. If it is, I don't want to be one of the people who is too stuck in their ways to welcome Jesus as king when he came in unexpected ways. If it is, I don't want to be a person on the outside looking in to what God is doing in the world. I want to have a front row seat. So God, give us a heart to hear what you are saying, not only what you have said, but what you are saying today. Amen.